can have a seat. And if you choose, you can stand up. It's going to be a little bit fast for you sitting down, but I'll leave it up to you. Come set your rule and in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil. church how you doing this beautiful morning all right i'm making sure i i was not fully here we go hold on check one two there we are excellent it is a pleasure to see you all this wonderful morning i'm so glad that the lord woke you up and you are here he is waking me up as well coffee helps a little bit uh but i am so glad to see you all we are continuing our series. This is our second week in the series on our vision. And our vision is Indiana Alliance Church aspiring to proclaim the gospel, to be a refuge, and to restore our relationships with God and others. Last week, we honed in on the word aspiring as we talked about Holy Spirit dependence. And today, we're going to be honing in on the proclamation of the gospel. And the title of today's sermon is Provocation for Proclamation. Provocation for Proclamation. So if you would uh, bow your heads with me and pray before we jump in. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have good news for us to share. I thank you that your good news changes everything. You gave up your life so we can live. Father, I thank you for that. 
And I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will speak through me. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will enliven each one of our hearts to hear the word that you have for us. And I pray that it will be a time of transformation, not just education. For the gospel, the good news, the word of God should change what we do, not just what we think. And so, Father, I pray that you will bring transformation this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Now, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page definition-wise. Some two quick definitions. I'm sure many of you know this already, but the word provoke means to stir up feelings, desires, or activity. And the word provocation is the act of provoking. So provoking to stir up those feelings. And so that's where we come up with this idea of provocation for proclamation. Let me just share a story of, of being provoked that many of you might be able to relate to. Hillary and I often, as we're driving in, the, in our van, we'll be talking and trying to have a deep conversation because, you know, we're by ourselves driving, we're with the kids driving maybe to Pittsburgh or somewhere else and we have to try and catch up on the day. And as we're talking, all of a sudden we hear, Dad, Daddy, Dad, Mom, Dad, Daddy. And we're trying to ignore it. We're trying to have a conversation. We're trying to let them know we're not going to listen to what you're trying to say because we need to finish this conversation. But then it gets louder. Dad, Daddy, Dad, Dad, Dad. And you're like, what do you need? I'm thirsty. <laughs> I mean, just something, something just off the wall bizarre that's really not important. Or I love this one. I forgot. <laughs> right? You, right? And there's, there's this provocation. There's this provoking that happens where, you know, as a father and a mother, we can lean into our sinful nature and just like, just be quiet. Or we could have a good answer to say, you know what, next time, let's not interrupt mommy and daddy, right? It's not easy to always go with that type of response. But, you know, our children also provoke great responses where we see them do something that, that is just so Jesus-like that we just look and we say, wow, I have so much joy. I have so much love for this kid. And, you know, I know Liam, he comes up to me now. He's, as soon as he learned what I love you means, he'll just be like, I love you, Dad. And now he says, you're the greatest daddy in the whole world. And he says that about everything, though. Everything's the greatest thing in the whole world, right? But when you hear it for the first time, you're just, ah, oh, it just provokes this, this great feeling, this great desire of love for our children. You see, that's just a, a small example of provocation, but I believe that the Holy Spirit also gives you and I provocation, that He provokes our spirit, that He provokes our hearts. And specifically, we're going to be talking about how He provokes us when we look at the current culture around us, right? There should be some type of response as we look at where our current culture is, where our world is at, as we see it torn at the seams when it comes to the political divide, maybe the racial divide, as we look at our culture and we see people consistently failing and falling into deeper and deeper sin, it should provoke something within us. But are we going to respond the way Jesus would respond and use and leverage that provocation for proclamation? Or are we going to lean into the wrong emotion or the wrong response because we can react to our culture in an unholy manner. And I believe that the Lord wants us to respond well. Our reactions actually expose the reality of our hearts as well. How are we reacting to the culture? How are we reacting to the people in our world? 
Check the responses in which you respond and it will reveal where your heart is at. We're going to unpack that a little bit more. But I believe as we open up this passage, we're looking at Acts 17, 16 through 32. Acts 17, 16 through 32. I believe he answers, Paul answers this question. The Lord answers this question. How do we allow provocation to lead to proper proclamation? How do we allow provocation to lead to proper proclamation? And so I'm going to be reading again uh, from the ESV version. So if it sounds a little bit different, that is okay. Uh, it doesn't mean that anyone has a holier version. It's just different. So Acts 17, 16 through 32. Here's the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Where therefore you worship as, as, as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Erigapate, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Now, I know that's a long passage, but I think it's imperative for us to understand the total story of what Paul did and what Paul said so that we can see how this provocation leads to proper proclamation. 
You see, Paul, he stepped into an Athens that was no longer the beautiful city that it once was. In Athens, before, as we remember in the Greece heyday, it was the popular place to be. It was where philosophers hung out. It's where the college began. It was this space of wisdom. Athena is the goddess of wisdom, and so it was this place of deep wisdom. But Paul steps into an Athens that is kind of dull. Because now they're no longer working from the seat of wisdom. They're trying to grasp at everything that's new. They're a new thing culture. In fact, it was said that in Athens there were more gods than there were men. Sounds like a similar culture. It sounds like some things are are similar to what we find ourselves in. There are many gods in our culture. Now, we might not call them gods, but as we look at our culture, people are grabbing all these different things and making it their God or worshiping it or serving it. And so Paul stepped into an Athens that is very much like America. It is very much like America. And we should sense the spirit of the living God provoking us, just as it provoked Paul. Now, it's imperative that we understand as we are provoked that we determine with discernment why we have been stirred. Why is God stirring us? What is the purpose of this provocation? What is the the inciting incident of this provocation? What is it that gets us provoked about this culture? What is bothering us? How do we apply it? What do we do about this specific provocation that we have in our lives? You see, when, it, when you look at the story of Paul, it wasn't Paul's plan to be in Athens. He was running away from the agitators trying to get ahead where Paul and, or, uh, Timothy and Silas would follow him later. He was passing through Athens, but on his way, God developed something in his life. He couldn't get away. He walked around and saw all these idols and his heart was provoked. He was stirred to a deep emotion. And it doesn't say this in the passage, but if you look at the other things that Paul has written, he, I guarantee, stopped and stepped and said, Lord, why is this happening? How do I go about dealing with this stirring? His spirit was provoked. And if you look at the Greek word for provoked, it also means to urge. And I believe that this word is purposely put in there because there's this provocation, but there's also this urging to do something about it. Many times when we're stirred by our culture or we're frustrated about certain things that are happening in our culture, we kind of just get bitter and we yell about it and we say, oh, I just long for this to change and blah, 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 but we're not doing anything about it. But when we're provoked, it's an urging from the Lord to do something about it. And here Paul feels this provocation. He feels this urge and he asks the Lord, what is it that I'm to do? Because I fully believe that provocation leads us to prayer and prayer leads us to action. If we are not discerning what the Holy Spirit is doing, you and I will act in the flesh, not in the Holy Spirit. And so we must take time to pray And seek out, Lord, what is it that you're stirring within me? What specifically is it that is just bothering me and moving me? And we need to pray and ask the Lord, what is it I'm to do? How do I go about acting upon this provocation? Because my friends, in in the Christian culture, it is way too easy to badmouth stuff but do nothing about it. 
It is way too easy to stand on the sidelines and tell the coach how to coach, but not actually help and actually get on the field or do anything. It's really easy. As a dad who's been watching football with Pee Wee, it's really easy for me to just want to say, hey, coach, what are you doing? Can't you see the defense? What's wrong with you? But I have no place to do that because I've not taken the time to step down and do something and help coach or be on the field. I've done nothing to do. But there is something that we are called to do when we're provoked. It is for the purpose of urging us into action. And we must seek the Lord on what that is. Henry Nouwen, he's a really great, great author. And he had a book called The Prodigal Son. It's interesting that uh, David mentioned The Prodigal Son because in this book on The Prodigal Son, Henry Nouwen says this, I have to kneel before the Father, put my ear against his chest and listen without interruption to the heartbeat of God. Then and only then can I say carefully and very gently, what I hear. And I believe intimacy with God gives us the proper course of proclamation. Gives us the proper course of proclamation. Intimacy with God. I told you, I'm going to say intimacy with God for 25 years or however long God has me here, 30, until I die. Because it's important that we grasp the fullness of what we are to do by intimacy with the Father. That is how we move forward. That is how we hear His voice. That is how we put our head to His chest. In the book of John, which we're going to be unpacking uh, later in the, the end of this year, in the beginning of next year, Paul or John specifically calls himself the beloved, uh, beloved disciple. And we see that Paul, John would put his head to Jesus' chest while they were reclining because he wanted to be intimate with Jesus, to hear what was going on in his heart, to be so close that they were touching. That's how you and I should be with the Lord, so that we can hear His heartbeat for the world. When we're provoked and we ask the Lord, what are we to do? He will also give us the words to say. He will also empower us in the action that we are called to do. Jesus Himself, in the book of Acts, He told the disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit, don't do anything. But how often do you and I jump in without the Holy Spirit? We say, I got this, Jesus. Yeah, I'm provoked. I'm going to go yell at somebody about how they need to stop doing that. But we're not waiting for the Holy Spirit to lead us, to give us the words to say. If we do not wait, if we do not lean into the heart of God, we will respond in our flesh and we will turn people away from the gospel rather than drawing them towards it. We must capture that idea. We must understand that connection. The next thing that we see when it comes to the provocation, how does it lead us to the proper proclamation? Paul got this and he understood that we must live lives that lead to discussion instead of debate. We must live lives that lead to discussion instead of debate. And here's what I mean. It says in verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul lived among the people. Paul spent time. It was his custom. Whenever he would go into a city, before he would deal or talk with Gentiles, he would move into the synagogue and talk with the Jews. Why? Because everybody knew who he was. 
He was one of the most famous people in the Jewish culture. He, he was underneath one of the most famous rabbis. And his story would have blown up all around in the Jewish circles. And so he would go and he would say, listen, my life is different. Here's my reputation. You knew what I was up to. Now you know what I'm doing. And he would reason with them about the gospel. They would ask him, why in the world would you throw all of this away? And sometimes they'd get really upset and they'd kick him out of the synagogue. And he's like, fine, I'll just go to the Gentiles because you're not listening. But he would spend time with them. He would reason with them. He was with them in the day and in the night. He was spending time. He was not separated. He wasn't thinking, oh man, Athens is so bad. I'm going to go and I'm just going to sit in my apartment. I'm going to pray for them and that's all I'm going to do. Praying is good. Praying is powerful. But if we're really praying with the Holy Spirit, we will be moved to action. If we're really asking God, do something, he's going to say, okay, do something. I'm using you. Wait, hey, that's not what I meant. Use someone else, please, because I'm just praying. I'm on knees. And he's like, well, get up and go be used by me. And Paul was in the synagogues. He was in the marketplace. He was spending time with them. And it doesn't say that he was debating with these folks. He was having a reasonable discussion. A reasonable discussion. And it was through his reputation that this happened and transpired. He was able to have this conversation. The word reason means not only sharing with cognitive reason, but also it means a civil discourse between two parties. How often when we're trying to be in the midst of proclamation, does it all of a sudden end from civil discourse into argument? Because our goal many times when we are in this apologetic conversation or this apologetic mode is to make them believe what we believe. And we're using our mind, trying to get their mind to say, oh, yes, that's true. But the reality is, is that we need to be ministering to hearts, not to minds alone. Now, we do need to have an answer. We do need to understand as we're going to unpack a little bit about what does the gospel mean? How are we transformed by the gospel? What does it mean to have an apologetic? But it starts with our life. It starts with us leading with a discussion, not a debate. Leading with a discussion and not a debate. Paul understood that the inciting incident for apologetics is a life and not a mouth. The inciting incident for apologetics is a life and not a mouth. Here's what I mean. If you are any type of literature person and you understand literature or stories, there's always a, an inciting incident that begins a conversation or that begins the hero's work or that begins what's supposed to happen. For example, if you take Lion King, and if you've never seen Lion King, this is a spoiler alert. But I think many of you probably have. The inciting incident that happens in, in, the, in the, the movie, rather, Lion King, is when Mufasa dies. Because that begins the journey of Simba. Had that not happened in the life of Simba, his life would have been different. It wouldn't have looked the same. But that was the inciting incident. And so the inciting incident for you and for me when it comes to apologetics is our Life. Our life is the inciting incident into the lives of people around us. The gospel should so change us that we live it. You know, one preacher once said that we don't just have the story of Jesus recording of what he said. We also have a recording of what he did. He walked among. He didn't just talk. He did. And that's important that we understand the truth of the gospel is that Jesus took our place. He died for our sins, was rose again by the power of God, defeated Satan's sin and death 
that He gives us His righteousness, that we can be holy because of Him. But if that's true, if we understand that we stand righteous and that we are sanctified as part of what we believe is the CMA, that we are, Jesus is our sanctifier. If we believe that, then we should be living sanctified lives. And those sanctified lives would then translate into a discussion about why we live the way in which we live. When it comes to our culture, how we react to sin shows, shows us how we view God. It shows us how we view God. He hates sin, but he woos the sinner. How often when we engage culture, how often when we engage folks that just don't believe what we believe or have a huge angry conversation with us, how could you believe something like that? Are we, and our, our reaction sinful? Are we moving in our flesh or are we trying to, as the Holy Spirit, woo them to the gospel? Because when we react, unlike the world reacts, they're going to notice, why aren't I making you mad? I just said that everything you believe is silly and false. Why doesn't that make you angry? Well, because I know that this is true and I need to live it out. And so I don't need to get angry. I'm secure in what I believe. Here's a little secret. People who get angry when people challenge what they believe are not fully secure in what they believe. Are we secure in what we believe? We don't have to react in anger. We need to look at the story of how Jesus spoke of the prodigal son. How did the father respond? With love. He responded with love. He could have slapped him about. He could have disowned him. He could have had him stoned. But instead he put the signet ring, he put his jacket and he threw a party because his son had returned. Are we wooing people to the gospel with our lives or are we shoving them away? Listen, our missiology in the States needs to match the missiology that we have across the world. Our middle name is Missionary. Christian and Missionary Alliance Church. And as David had hinted towards, it's not just in Japan, but it's here as well. The problem with the idea of missions as it comes to this main focus of our life is that we think about missions as out there. And so the way in which people prepare for missions work, we don't actually apply to our ecclesiology. Our missiology does not impact our ecclesiology. The way we see missions does not impact the way we do church. Here's what I mean, why it should match our ecclesiology. Because we live in a culture that is way different than what we're used to. We live in an odd, strange, alien culture. Just like David, when he goes to Japan, he has to learn the culture. He has to learn the language. He has to learn the vernacular. He has to know what's to dress, what's not to dress. What to say, what's not to say. He has to understand how he can speak the language of the people to draw them to the gospel. My friends, we're not acting that way when it comes to our missiology or our proclamation of the gospel. We're demanding that they listen to us even though it doesn't make sense. We're getting frustrated that the message isn't getting across. Now, the message, the message never needs to change. The gospel is that Jesus died, rose again, conquered Satan's sin and death, and sent the Holy Spirit to empower us. We are now new creations. It is a new covenant. The message never changes, but the mode does. No matter where you go in a different country, you're going to change the mode uh, and the method of the way in which you bring the message. Am I right? 
Our missiology should match our ecclesiology. The way we think about missions should impact the way we do it here. In 1 Peter 3.15, the the huge passage on apologetics, where it's one of the only places, if not the only place, that the word is mentioned, apologia, that is. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter states this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The Greek word there for, for a defense is apologia, which is the root word which does mean defense. It doesn't mean debate because apologetics is a defense, not a debate. We can't launch into the conversation with people without living life on, uh, life, on life with them anymore in our culture. Our culture is different. And 50, 60 years ago, we could have a conversation about a God a heaven and a hell, and we can explain a little bit about how you get there. But our culture does not have that same mode of thinking any longer. In fact, many in the church are even saying that hell is not a real thing and heaven is just kind of an imaginary thing. Even in the church culture, these things are invading, and so we must have a different way of approaching this, this message The mode must change. We can't launch into saying, you're a sinner, you need to be saved. That turns people off and they say, well, you already hate me. Why do I even need to have a conversation with you? It's life on life. I once had a conversation with a street preacher who was in Oakland near the University of Pittsburgh. And he was yelling at people and he was telling them how sinful they are and how terrible they are and how awful their lives are. And I I, I asked him to come. He was actually standing on a soapbox. (laughs) And I said, can we just have a conversation? I said, I just need to ask you, how, how, uh, how does this work? How, how many people have you saved? How many has God saved through this, this mode? And he said, oh, one in ten years. I said, well, praise God for that one person. I said, but I've been on this campus and God has used my life and the lives of our students and we have seen seven people come to Jesus and they've been, most of them have been baptized. I said, it matters in this culture to live with them to live among them, to have a voice, to have a conversation. Another experience I had is working as a waiter in Chili's. I was working there with a friend, and this friend was not a believer. And it was, I think it was a Sunday afternoon. I was still in college. And it was right after church, and these folks came in in their church clothes, and they were probably the the, the worst customer this person had all day because everything was too hot, everything was too cold, there wasn't enough ice, there wasn't enough chips, all these different things. Left a 1% tip and a track. And this person comes up to me and says, is